0: everyone and welcome back to VLGA Connect. It's the weekly governance update and I'm joined as always at this time by Stephen Cooper from the VLGA. Hi Steve. Hi Chris, how are you? I'm extra well, thank you. What about you?
1: I'm, I'm well as well, glad to hear it and hasn't it been a huge week in governance?
0: massive week i've got a long list of things that we probably won't do justice to any of them and i just want to thank all those people who've uh, tuned in for last week's episode when we were joined by richard scoogle from hunt and hunt lawyers our terrific sponsors to talk about the mandated vaccinations the impact on local government Uh, it's really struck a chord steve a lot of people are digesting that information uh, with interest it seems
1: And of course, also Richard's rather excellent homework about that um, Transport New South Wales case, Chris.
0: Yes, and I must confess, I misunderstood him. I thought that he'd said it had given him a topic to use on a true crime podcast. And I was wondering what true crime podcast is he on? But he was actually referring to this being a true crime podcast. You got that, I think. I didn't.
1: No, sometimes we just lurch into that space, Chris.
0: Yeah. Uh, You're keeping an eye on Operation Watts, the live hearings this week?
1: I've had it going in the background occasionally, Chris, and um, to date, nothing to report from local government, but um, I'll look always interesting in IBAC live hearing.
0: Absolutely, it's, uh, it maintains the interest. And of course, it's clashing at the moment with the Central Coast Public Inquiry in New South Wales, which is back online, and I confess I've not been able to tune oh. into, but there are reports coming out every day about the evidence that's coming forward in that inquiry as well.
1: Actually, I've blissfully ignored that one, Chris, so you've given me some homework, thank you.
0: Now, and I'm, and I'm sure there'll be uh, outcomes that we'll talk about uh, at some point. Um, Possibly the big one this week, Steve, from a local government point of view was the Victorian Ombudsman's report, having looked at uh, the processes around a particular planning issue in the city of Kingston.
1: Yeah, um, so that dropped midweek and uh, the Ombudsman's report was tabled in Parliament. Chris, you might recall for listeners that in episode 169 of LGA Connect, we actually unpacked the internal report that was undertaken by Kingston into um planning permits and there was some concern um, expressed. What had caused that um, report was, I think from the council's point of view, I need to have some satisfaction that the developers involved um, in the KCI back hearing um, that there were no similar activities that had gone on at Kingston. There's also another report that the council had previously commissioned, a governance report um, as well. So the council had already um, commissioned its own work The Ombudsman report related to a quite specific development um, at Patterson Lakes where um, there had been, I think, a rezoning um some twenty years ago. And I think overall the concern from the from the residents was that what was built was in fact not what was promised. Um, 20 years ago when the zoning was done.
0: Good memory. Uh, Episode 169, 14th of of May, we commended the Council on having conducted that process and being in front of it. And I I think it's fair to say the Ombudsman's findings are not uh, out of step with what the Council itself has been working on.
1: I think there's a couple of things there, Chris, and while I think of it, Phil Delosa, the rather excellent governance manager at Kingston, um, has indicated to me that he's available if anyone uh, wants to follow up with the council more specifically on these matters. Uh, And I think the other thing that should be said for the council too, Chris, is interesting that the Ombudsman didn't make any recommendations in that report, which would indicate that the Ombudsman's office is quite satisfied with the findings of the council reports and, you know, the progress that the council had actually undertaken. Um, Which is not to say there weren't some issues that were, you know, worthy of a bit of review.
0: So in summary, the observations were around process, uh, recording of meetings that are held between council people, councillors and officers and developers, those were some, and the strategic planning process behind that?
1: I think so, Chris, and, and look, let's um, be very clear, so there was no finding of any corruption or wrongdoing either by the senior um, planning officer or by the two councillors who were named in the report but the Ombudsman's office and the report did find some deficiencies. And and you're, you're very right in terms of um, the nature of those deficiencies. Look, my reading of it, Chris, is, um, it's one of those issues that can occur when you've got a really complex matter and not everyone in the organisation is across the complexity of that matter. So in a sense, you had ownership of, um, you know, the decision making in relation to that particular precinct with um, an individual and, you know, potentially without the benefit of that kind of uh, peer and council review um, that might create some healthy tension in the organisation. There was also a perception that the relationship of the senior officer with the developer, might be, well, the, the allegation was that it was improper. Um, that wasn't found, but I think the Ombudsman made some comments that said it wasn't unreasonable that that perception be drawn, given the nature of some of the meetings between the council staff and the developer, and those then those symptoms that you talked about Um, regarding maybe the inadequacy of documentation of decisions and so
0: on. So the report is there for all to read. It's been tabled in Parliament. Uh, Kingston was pretty quick to come out in response to the report and point out that it was uh, well aware of those issues and working towards them. I did like what the interim CEO had to say about, you know, hoping the community uh, can have faith and, and, and trust that the Council's not going to repeat past mistakes.
1: Well, it was interesting. It went away from that typical binary narrative, Chris, because the Council has said, look, yeah, we could be better. But there's no evidence of, of wrongdoing and corruption. And, you know, often the world's like that.
0: OK, hopefully we can put that one to bed. Uh, another one that's not quite put to bed, but the uh, the Parliamentary Inquiry report has come back um, into, I hate this, but it's what it's become known as, Sluggate. The Sluggate Inquiry, as The ages reported it uh, this morning, uh, into the closure of iCook. It's come back with some recommendations, but it's actually said, um, it found no evidence that government officials had done anything deliberate in terms of omission of evidence. Steve,
1: no, and I think, it, and I've got to say, Chris, um, you're probably more across this than me. But my understanding was, the um, the report made some critical comments regarding um, process and decision making, but certainly didn't find anything to do. Um, that there was deliberate omission. I guess I'm a little bit torn on this one, Chris, because I'm mindful there is still a legal matter to play out. Um, I suspect it won't be the last time uh, that you and I talk about it. And um, I'm actually with you. I think the issues, um, I don't know, is it a mixed metaphor to say the slug's a red herring?
0: It's a mixed something. (laughs) (laughs) You did say back when we first started talking about this, look beyond the slug.
1: I mean, there are some really interesting issues, Chris. And look, I just think process is everything. And let us let the court process play out because there will be some interesting findings about that and I'm really looking forward to it. I may editorialise at the end of this.
0: (laughs) We might just leave that one there. Just to note that there were five recommendations from the inquiry, things like um, body cameras to be worn during food safety inspections, which will clear up a lot of the issues in this particular case. Uh, And the department ensuring that food is always tested in Listeria investigations and a few other recommendations as well. Uh, Another one. So the parliament is having um, an impact this week in terms of uh, local government. There's been a private members bill introduced by the opposition to uh, David Davis, I think, in particular from the opposition to stop. um, This is particularly due to Yarra's decision to impose fees on businesses using car parks for outdoor dining. I think I've got that right. Um, They've moved to try and block council's ability to impose those sorts of fees. The state government has said they're not going to support that bill. So it's unlikely that it's going to go anywhere.
1: Yeah, I sort of get a bit torn on. No, I'm not even torn, Chris. Um, I'll I'll make a personal observation, I suppose. Um, This issue has received an extraordinary amount of press in the tabloid media. And of course, as we know in Melbourne, we only have the tabloid media these days. Um, and I find it really interesting the level of attention that it's got that a local council in setting the fees is somehow cast as being the only body responsible for you know, the continuity of the business sector. If we take a step back, um, I think it's really important to note that councils operate in a rate capping environment, um, that councils operate on under a principles-based act where at the end of four years, council councilors' futures will be determined in an election. Chris, we're in an environment where um, there has been a significant cost shift to local government and remembering that the source of local government funds, typically for most councils, it's 65 or 70 per cent of council services rate capped come from Property rates. Yeah. If we look at other levels of government, um, state government uh, revenues come from stamp duty, payroll tax, land tax. Federal government, um, you know, you're talking about income taxes, company taxes, GST. So I think it's a useful discussion for people to have around where should funding of particular outcomes come from. So we're in an environment where the federal government decided some months ago to um, discontinue JobKeeper. Mm-hmm. There have been a series of um, discussions between federal and state government regarding ongoing business support, but somehow it's the responsibility of a council to you know, keep local business going. And I think it's, um, I'd have to say, What I've seen of the response, it seems to be a bit like, um, what do you say, cracking a walnut by dropping an anvil on it. Um, (laughs) There is a quite legitimate discussion and I'm not certainly not defending the Yarra City Council. That's a matter for the Yarra City Council. But there is a quite reasonable discussion about what's the public loss of utility at a time where business is going to resume. By certain businesses taking car parking spaces out of action, when we know that often the business community will tell councils that keeping car parks in place is necessary for the continuity of their business. So, those are the kind of tensions that councils um, will deal with. So, I'm not sort of saying, you know, councils should be beyond criticism on this point, but can we actually keep this in context? Because if businesses rise and fall, it's not really typically the actions of just one council.
0: You're being rational and logical again, Stephen Cooper. I'm happy to accuse you of that. I I do want to just read you the quotes from Tim Pallas, the treasurer, who uh, was quoted in the Herald Sun as saying he doesn't like the charges and that the government has written Mm. to the council urging them to reverse the decision and that that's the appropriate way to to deal with the issue. But he said, local governments have their own constituencies, they're elected by their constituencies, and they're ultimately accountable to those constituencies. From this government's point of view, the desire to impose taxes of this nature is inappropriate, but it's also inappropriate for government to simply jump in over the top of local government.
1: It's not the fee. I mean, the fee does seem a little on the high side, but mate, and I don't know, I haven't read the report. I suspect a whole lot of people opining on the fees haven't read the report. Um, and it really does go to what's the relationship between local government and state government. And maybe we'll talk about the uh, state local government agreement in 2014 at some stage, Chris, because that's a recurring theme as well.
0: It is. It is. And, and the other note is that one of the councillors at Yarra has moved a, a call for a rescission motion. Uh, yep. That's going to be considered at the next meeting, which I think is coming up uh, this week. So you know, there'll be more to report on this issue.
1: Isn't local democracy a fine thing?
0: <laughs> it sure is. Um, okay, I want to go down into Tassie now. Uh, an extraordinary story out of Tasmania. And we have we have talked about this uh, briefly and we didn't want to go into too much detail. I think we can probably go into a little bit more detail now. Chris, are Steve? you telling
1: me there's been a report?
0: There's been a report. There has been a report. So the Tasmanian Auditor-General, whose name is Rod Whitehead, has tabled a report uh, this week in Tasmanian Parliament on the recruitment, appointment and performance assessment of council general managers in that state. And he's made some recommendations broadly for the sector about basically bringing those processes in line with contemporary human resources practice. But he's, he's done a particular review of the recruitment process that led to the appointment of the general manager of Hewan Valley, council um i might get you to step in now steve and tell me what is wrong with this picture where the person who's been appointed is in a relationship with the person who runs the recruitment agency that actually conducted that process for Ooh, the council
1: gee chris that's a tough one um i just wonder what any of the unsuccessful applicants might say
0: uh, is, is, i don't wonder the, actually that, i'm pretty sure right? I, i'm pretty sure i know what they'd say but you go on let's uh, let's play this out
1: Okay, so yeah, so the successful applicant is in a relationship with the head of the recruitment agency. Um, clearly, a conflict of interest. Can I make the point, Chris? And that's and why I think the um, the views of the uns- and the confidence of the unsuccessful applicants in the process is paramount here. And like everyone's going to be disappointed from time to time about a recruitment process. I think it's a conflict of a nature that can't be managed um, in any way, shape or form, you couldn't have that person step aside and have someone else deal with the matter Mm. because the conflict still exists between an owner of that company and the successful applicant. So it would strike me, um, unless there is some stunning information that I'm not aware of, that that uh, relationship is fatally flawed. And the minute the successful applicant was going to be an applicant, I, you know, the recruiting company needed to step back and say that they couldn't do it, or he needed to not be an applicant. You know, I kind of yeah. think that's pretty simple.
0: Can I read you what the auditor general said? Because he would know all of the facts of the matter. And um, his uh, and I quote: uh, his finding is that it was inadequate management of the conflict of interest, resulting in a flawed recruitment process. The potential for bias and unfair treatment of applicants was significant throughout the process. The process also undermined the public confidence required in an appointment as significant as the General Manager of Council.
1: I would say so and I think what my point Chris was that sometimes you might seek to manage the conflict by saying well we won't get that person to do it but another person can and the perception would have still existed.
0: So the Mayor of that Council has publicly said they accept the findings and the recommendations that come out of that. I just mm. wonder does anything happen now in terms of that appointment and the stability of that appointment?
1: I can't talk for the stability, Chris, but I mean, I think you've got an interesting situation where a contract of employment's been created and, you know, be up for people like our friends at Hunt & Hunt to sort of indicate whether there was something in the process other than the conflict of interest, though, which would sort of point to the contract of employment not being enforceable. Otherwise, you would assume it just rolls on, however tainted.
0: One would assume that that report from the Auditor General is going to be consumed with great interest by all of the parties that were uh, involved in that process, uh, Stephen. We might just leave that there. But in respect of the broader recommendations, Mr Whitehead said um, five out of six councils examined had contracted a consultant to assist with the recruitment process with instances of both good and poor practice identified. And he's highlighted some instances of poor practice Uh, And made some recommendations, as I said at the outset, how those processes could be more in line with contemporary human resources practices.
1: Yeah, Chris, I, you and I have talked before about the fact that for councils, there is no more important contractual arrangement than the employment contract with the chief executive. So um, I just wonder if we might not come back to that. Um, our listener can actually put on that list of things that we're going to come back to, to unpack what that report might say more broadly about the ongoing management of CEO contracts, because I think it's worth a review. a
0: that listener contacted me during the week to say, um, uh, "Ha ha, smiley face, Kill Bill, too." So I've got a feeling they're a little bit behind and they're catching up. So it might be it might be a while before we get the updated list, Steve.
1: No, I'm leaving it right there. I thought sure that listener is usually quite current, but anyway.
0: Now, um, before we wrap up, uh, you've got a cracker of the story to finish on. Out of New Zealand. A bit of wizardry and magic going on here. What's the story with the wizard of Christchurch Council?
1: This is spellbinding, Chris. Um, <laughs> and let's just pun. I my understanding is, and I didn't know until I read that the wizard had their own wiki page, um that the Christchurch City Council has been on a contractual basis paying for a wizard um to be in town. Um, doing wizardry, I presume. <laughs> that would be my question. Doing what um, for the last sixteen years? And mm. the bit that made the media was that the council had um, concluded that contractual arrangement. Um, the wizard is none too impressed, and is has in fact, um, I think, threatened to put a, a curse on the council. <laughs>
0: Um, I didn't know there was a Wikipedia page for the wizard until you pointed it out to me. He's 88.
1: Yeah, and there's a long history of the wizard, he's the wizard of New Zealand, I think. And yeah, as I said, at some point, I think he was standing on a soapbox and doing wizarding things, wearing something like the sorting hat from um, from the Harry Potter movies, right. and the Council. Um, contracted with the wizard to continue to provide those wizarding services. I did find it quite amusing that the wizard was at pains to point out that it was a contractual payment, not a salary. Um, I don't know if that's an issue for the tax office, Um, but the council, um, as I said, has terminated that. And let's be fair to Christchurch council, they have had a bit going on in that intervening 16 years. So maybe um, with earthquakes and so on, and maybe... um, the contractual arrangement with the wizard hadn't been at the top of the kind of um decision
0: pile. I'm uh, sure that's in, right. 20 it's, it's twenty-three years actually, um Ooh. Steve. Sixteen thousand dollars a year, which is where you might have got the sixteen ah, yes. from for twenty-three years. But I love the last line in the story uh that uh, that I've read about this. The termination of the wizard's contract won't stop his acts of wizardry. He's saying they'd have to kill him first. <laughs> <laughs> That's, pretty, That's pretty pretty. dramatic. <laughs> On that magical note, thanks for the wizardry as always, Steve, and we'll see you again for another VLGA Connect governance update next week.
1: Good trick, Chris. See you.
0: <laughs> and our program is brought to you by Hunt and Hunt Lawyers from VLGA Connect. Thanks for joining us. See you again soon. <music>